You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, good afternoon, 130. How are we feeling? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. What do you say we pray for just a minute and ask God to help us as we look into his word for just a minute? Uh, Lord, I want to thank you for your holy inspired word, and we need you. In fact, as we pray, if you guys wouldn't mind just to hold out your hands in such a way as to receive from the Lord. Father, as we come before you, we come before you humbly, because we're not the people that think we know it all. We're not the people that think we've got it all together. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, welcome here to illuminate our minds and help us to see truth. If you're a spiritual investigator, not quite sure if God's even out there, I want you to pray in your own heart and mind, God, please reveal yourself to me. God, if you will reveal, I will respond. God, the rest of us that are uh, followers of yours, we ask you to help us be transformed, changed by your word and its truth. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Well, in case you're uh, just coming here for the first time in a while, uh, we have been in the midst of a series called Think About It, in which we've been looking at belief in an age of skepticism. And we've been considering what we believe why we believe it. This week, we're going to be looking at uh, the New Testament of the Bible and think about whether or not we believe that it is legit. Now, one of the things that we've been acknowledging during this series that some of us are wired or oriented towards feelings, right? Where are my feelers at? Raise your hands real quick, feelers. Got a bunch of feelers out here. You're passionate about life. And then we've got others who are more oriented towards being uh, thinkers, right? Where are my thinkers at? Raise your hand. Uh, thinkers. And we've joked around with each other. It's like, you know, thinkers, the feelers think that, uh, that, that we're boring. Um, and then uh, feelers don't get too uppity with us because we think you're shallow. So uh, get off there, right? But uh, we're going to be kind of leaning more in the direction of those of you that are thinkers today. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn to someone next to you or someone in front of you or behind you, and I want you to tell them, think about it. Okay, that's pretty good. I saw someone get poked on the forehead there, so <laughs> mission accomplished for me. Now, maybe you're one of those like me that kind of questions a lot of stuff in life and questions whether or not we could really trust and believe the documents that we hold in our hands as the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, maybe you felt like, uh, saw a documentary on TV and thought to yourself, well, these documents really aren't legit, but it's just a bunch of old dudes with beards. By the way, nothing wrong with a beard, right? Uh, but a bunch of old dudes with beards smoking peyote around a campfire, telling stories, and someone wrote them down like hundreds of thousands of years later and trying to control the masses with a group of documents. Well, is that true? Can we trust the New Testament of the Bible? Is it just a collection of stories? Is it, you know, uh, what's the deal w with this uh, collection of letters and documents? Well, I want to see, I want to show you the mindset of a guy who wrote down and recorded the majority of the New Testament uh, documents. His name was Luke. He was a doctor, a physician. And I want you to read with me from your phone Bible, your uh, on screen. Just look at the screen. It takes way less time, doesn't it? <laughs> Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the rumors, <laughs> you caught me on that one, eyewitnesses, see? Eyewitness reports circulating 
among us from the early disciples, having, say that next word with me, carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write a, say the word again, careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Theophilus was a Roman dignitary type. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Does that sound like just a collection of stories from guys around the campfire? No. That is a very careful recording of historic events. And with that in mind, I want to submit to you this one simple transforming idea today. And here it is. The New Testament was carefully recorded. That means you and I should carefully consider it. So if you're a spiritual investigator, carefully consider the things that are written in this book. If you know Christ, carefully read it, carefully learn it, carefully meditate on it, carefully apply it to your life. The stakes are high in this because, look, look if the New Testament isn't legit, there is no reason to believe in Jesus. There's no reason to be here worshiping God. There's no reason to celebrate Christmas. But if it is for real, then Jesus says, I want to give you life and give it to you at the fullest, right? And so God, uh, through his son Jesus, wants to give you an abundant life, the Bible calls it, so that you can get through even the trials and hard times of this life. But more than that, he wants to give you an eternity in a place that's more beautiful and splendid than anything that you can imagine with your finite mind. And so the stakes are high here. Eternity's at stake. So I'm going to show you four reasons why we can trust the New Testament today. There are many, 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 many more than four reasons, but uh, we only have a, a limited amount of time here. And if you keep coming uh, over the times, over the years, you'll hear many, many more reasons to believe. But the first one is simply this. The New Testament was written early, early. It was written down early after the historic events took place. Now, one of the things that historians look for in ancient documents to validate them is the time frame between when the actual events took place and when they were written down or recorded. Now, we, will, we want, historians want a short time frame between when the events took place and when they were written down so that it leaves less time for the information to be twisted or the, to be uh, recorded wrongly, see? So we want a short time frame there. Now, what happens is, is that uh, every once in a while, uh, there'll be an author who comes out with a new book or there'll be a new documentary on the Discovery Channel that makes it look like there was this huge time frame from when the New Testament events took place and hundreds and hundreds of years later, it was recorded so that a group of people could consolidate power and control the masses. Well, actually, that's not even close to being true. But if the New Testament events were recorded decades after the historical events took place, what's the problem with that? Because decades is like 10 years, right? And so you got two decades, you got 20 years. Well, I want you to think about that in light of music. How many of you can remember songs from 20 years ago? And I want to illustrate this today. I want you to raise your hand if you can remember who sang this song that Margot is about to play. Go ahead, Margot. Anybody? All right, who was that? Yeah, all the girls said, Selena! You want to go home and hairspray your hair like that, you know, or you have that big fan in the front? <laughs> Selena sang that song 22 years ago. Now let's play it again 
Uh, raise your hand if you can remember what artist played this song. Go ahead, Margo. Okay, who sang it? Boom, thank you. If I went to the church where you didn't know that, I would leave uh, immediately, okay? You're halfway there, you're living on a prayer, and check it out. Bon Jovi sang that 30 years ago, okay? Some of you are like, Pastor Doug, you didn't have to say that, dude. I feel old, man. Okay, let's do it one more time. Uh, let's listen to one more, and you raise your hand as soon as you know what artist sang this song? Go ahead, Margo. Okay. How many of you know? Say it. Billy Ray Cyrus, right. That was Miley's dad. And look, he was rocking that achy, breaky, mistakey of a mullet 24 years ago. Okay, so check this out. Here's why we did this silly little exercise, is if you and I can remember things as trivial as achy, breaky heart or bitty, bitty, bomb, bomb after 20 or 30 years, what makes us think that the disciples could not remember the details of the life of a man that they saw rise from the freaking dead? You bet they remembered the details of his life and the things that they saw him do on this earth. And if you want to compare the New Testament with other writings of antiquity, let's look at some of their time gaps here and when the historic events happened and when they were recorded. Let's look at Aristotle, who was 1,400 years. Look at Plato, 1,200 years. Caesar, that is uh, um, Julius Caesar, 1,000 years. The New Testament Scholars say the events were uh, recorded sometime around 25 to 70 years, and I would lean heavily towards the 25-year mark there. This book is in, a, it's in another class of writings of antiquity. The New Testament was carefully recorded, and you and I should carefully consider it. Now, let's look at the second reason we can trust the New Testament is because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Let me explain what I mean by that. The writers included details that are personally embarrassing, which validates their honesty. This is one of the tests that historians use of ancient documents. That is the test of embarrassment. Uh, a lot of people who are going to lie, they always write down a story that makes them look better than they really are. You've seen that happen. It's called social media, right? <laughs> so here, the writers were willing to allow content into the documents that embarrassed them. The same method is used by crime scene investigators. I want to expose you to cold case detective J. Warner Wallace, who applied forensic evidence to the New Testament and investigated it and, and revealed that the New Testament had all the signs of a credible testimony. Now, let me show you three different ways that the apostles allowed uh, embarrassing information about themselves into the documents here. Number one, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now, how many of you would circulate a document in which the Son of God called you Satan? Okay, uh, this is embarrassing to Peter. Also, Peter denies Jesus. A third uh, embarrassment was that women discovered the empty tomb. Now, women, before you throw things at me, uh, in history at that time, women were not allowed to 
testify in court. And so if you wanted someone to be witness to the empty tomb of Jesus, thus proving his resurrection, you would not want it to be a woman in that day and age. Uh, Another thing that's embarrassing to the disciples is that when the Roman guards came to arrest Jesus and take him into custody, they ran like scared rabbits, and they stayed in hiding. And the women were the brave ones because they ventured out to find the empty tomb. See, how many guys do you know that when there's a conflict, they're going to say, yeah, I ran away like a scared (laughs) coward, right? Most men are going to say, I told that bro what's up, man, you know what I'm saying? Uh, But that didn't happen here. They allowed the embarrassing information to be in the text. And the only ones that should be more embarrassed than the apostles or the disciples would be the religious Jews who asked the Roman guards to lie about it and say that the disciples came to steal the body while they were asleep. Well, that story has two problems. Number one, the guards, Roman guards, would never say they fell asleep on the job um, for fear of severe punishment. Number two, if they were asleep when someone stole the body, how would they know that it was disciples that stole the body if they were asleep when said event happened? See? These things were carefully recorded, and we've got to carefully consider them. But look at the next reason we can trust the New Testament. The New Testament becomes more helpful when we consider our personal ethos. Um, Personal ethos. I had to make them all start with an E, right? I mean, I know that's cheesy, but maybe you'll remember them, right? But many are biased against documents like the New Testament because of our own ethos or cultural biases. We all grew up in families, in cities, in a state in a country where we have certain cultural blinders on us, see? Uh, We believe a certain thing about reality in the world, and we have these cultural blinders on, and I want you to consider um, what your cultural blinders could be, especially as it relates to um, the Bible, because sometimes we get offended by some of the things in the Bible because it rubs up against our cultural blinders, see? So another thing I want you to consider is that um, the, the New Testament may not be saying what you think it's saying, and you may be offended unnecessarily. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you have heard people say, well, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? And if you look at some of the things that Paul says in the New Testament, he says, slaves obey your masters. So what's the deal with that? Does the New Testament really validate slavery? Well, first of all, Paul's not endorsing slavery here in the New Testament. He's rather just helping slaves to have a better existence within the reality that they're in at the time. Also, first century slavery was very much different from uh, American slavery. If you look at historian uh, Murray Harris, he wrote a book on slavery in the first century in Greco-Roman culture, and he makes four observations about first century slavery. Number one, slaves were not distinguishable by race, speech, or clothing. They were never segregated off from other people. Number two, slaves were often more educated than their masters and many times had high managerial positions. Number three, slaves made the same wages as free laborers. They were not poor and often earned enough money to buy themselves out of slavery. Number four, very few persons were slaves for life. Most were slaves for 10 years or so uh, into their late 30s at the, the most. And so 
Slavery in the first century was really not that much unlike working under a government contract today, right? I mean, it just uh, wasn't that different from it. And here's what we think of when we, think, when we hear the word slavery. We think of American slavery in which it was race-based, um, it was slavery for life, and it was people who were kidnapped from their continent and brought to the United States to be subservient. And the New Testament clearly condemns all three of those things. And that is why Paul discourages slavery in the New Testament. 18th and 19th century Christian believers were responsible for abolishing slavery um, here in the Western world. So know that if you read it appropriately, the New Testament is not for slavery, see? Now, you might ask, well, hey, didn't the people in the southern United States use the Bible to justify slavery? You bet they did, and that makes my point. They justified slavery because of their own cultural blinders, see? Their own cultural blinders. Now, Tim Keller says that a lot of Americans practice cultural snobbery. You know what that is. Cultural snobbery is when we think that our way of thinking is so much wiser and more sophisticated than people in China or the Middle East or South America or Africa. And we kind of arrogantly believe that our way of thinking is always going to be correct. And what happens is, is that when we get offended because of something the Bible says um, that rubs up against our culture, then we throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, whereas other cultures are not offended by certain truths from the Bible. Let me give you some examples here. Uh, when, when those of us in America or Western culture in individualistic kinds of cultures read the Bible's truths about sexual conduct, we get offended by it, don't we? Because here in America, we want to have sex with who we want to have sex with. We want to do whatever we want to do, and we don't want the Bible telling us anything different. But if you go to the Middle East, they're not offended by uh, the biblical standards for sexual conduct. In fact, they could use it a little stricter over there. They wanted to be very strict over there. But when it comes to forgiveness in the New Testament, we like that because we don't want to feel guilt, and we're all into our emotions and feelings in the Western world. But if you go to the Middle East, um, they don't like the concept of forgiveness. So let me give you this thought. If the New Testament is really from God, then doesn't it make sense that it offends every culture at some point? See? And so we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because sometimes it's really probably that we need to evaluate our own cultural blinders, our own uh, cultural snobbery in order to see the truth rightly. But let me show you uh, another truth about the New Testament is that the, it has an effect on people that's interesting. The New Testament has a unique effect on people. Let me take you to Luke chapter 24, verse 32 real quick. Luke says there, uh, they say to each other, talking about the disciples, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? The apostles were impacted by Jesus' teaching of the Scriptures in such a way that it changed the whole trajectory of their lives. In fact, it changed them so much they were willing to die for it. These men, what did they have to gain by writing these things down and following this Jesus? I mean, they were excommunicated. They experienced beatings. 
They were executed. If you look back at history, Peter, Andrew, and Philip were crucified. Then Bartholomew was skinned alive. James the Greater was beheaded. Matthew was killed by the sword. Matthias was stoned to death. I mean, what more could these guys do to convince us that they were speaking the truth to us, right? Now, look, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that doesn't prove anything. I mean, after all, don't radical jihadists, I mean, Muslims who uh, are, are, are jihadists, don't they, you know, kill themselves because of their beliefs? So what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Jihadists are raised as children to kill others and die for the unsure possibility of Muslim heaven. The, the apostles killed no one. They loved and healed others for what they were sure of after they had seen the physical evidence of the resurrected Christ. That is the difference. And the resurrection for the apostles was what psychologists call an impact event. You know impact event, right? Where something happens. In fact, we talk about impact events in recovery. People change when an impact event happens. So when someone has an addiction that impacts their life, they lose their job or lose a spouse or family. It impacts us and makes us change. In fact, the 12-step process uh, was originally created from biblical principles. Alcoholics Anonymous has its roots in the research and teachings of Episcopal priest Samuel Shoemaker, as well as Dr. Frank Buckman, a Lutheran pastor from an Oxford Christian group in England who gleaned all of their ideas from the New Testament of the Bible. And in those days, they started to see people's lives changed by a text. Today in our church, we are continually seeing people's lives changed, an impact made, an effect from the principles of this word. And I remember when I was a teenager, I had an experience with God, and it changed me in my heart to where I had this hunger, this thirst for the Bible. In fact, I remember hearing my mother gossip about me on the phone to one of her friends, and she said, I don't know what's wrong with him. He doesn't go out and get in trouble anymore. He just stays up in his bedroom and reads his Bible. It's just got to be something wrong with him, right? It, I was fulfilling the truth of 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord's graciousness. Look, if you don't hunger for the word of God, the Bible, that's not a good indicator in your life. It's only natural for those who have a relationship with God to hunger for more of the Word of God. I'm not saying you have to have all the answers, right? I'm not saying you have to know everything about it. I'm saying you have to have a hunger and a thirst for it. There are all kinds of great translations out there to help you, but there's no greater translator than the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, giving you a hunger and thirst for these holy inspired words that have been passed down and preserved for you and I to enjoy. Now, much of the research that I did uh, for this talk came from uh, guys like Dr. John Dixon, uh, Sean McDowell, Frank Turek, uh, of course, Dr. Tim Keller. Uh, but one of the guys that has been notable in this field of investigating the validity of the New Testament is a guy named Josh McDowell. And McDowell was known back in the day as this hard-nosed skeptic who set out to prove the New Testament documents wrong, and we did an honest search, he found these documents to be uh, legitimate. 
And this caused him to believe not only in God, but believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sin. He accepted Christ into his life. And after that, uh, Josh McDowell has traveled the world. Uh, He's spoken to more college students at more universities than anyone in history about these truths, about these proofs for the faith. Uh, And what's interesting to me about Josh McDowell is not so much his story of investigating, finding it to be true, and beginning a relationship with Christ. That's a fairly common story. We hear that all the time. But what is interesting to me about Josh McDowell is that as he's gotten to be an older man, he has seen the connection between the truth of the New Testament of the Bible and his own spiritual recovery. Because what a lot of people don't know about Josh McDowell is what happened to him when he was a kid. He grew up on a farm, and his family hired a man named Wayne to work on the farm. And from the time that Josh was a a kid up into his teenage years, he was sexually molested by this man, Wayne. And some years later, when Josh became a Christ follower, uh, he was trained and taught from the New Testament of the Bible that we're supposed to forgive. But he didn't want to forgive. In fact, he said, I hate Wayne. I hate that man. I want him to burn in hell. What was happening to Josh is what we all know to be true from... uh, Author Anne Lamott, she says, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison expecting the rat to die. And Josh was dying on the inside from the hatred and the unforgiveness. But he chose to not only forgive, but to face his abuser. And so he went to Wayne one day, and he looked Wayne in the eye, and he said, Wayne, what you did to me was evil, but I'm choosing right now today to forgive you. And Josh McDowell said, hey, hey, I didn't feel all these warm fuzzies on the inside. I was just doing what I believed would please my heavenly father. And after that event, McDowell says, I was free. I was free from the hatred. I was free from the rat poison inside my soul from what had happened to me when I was younger. His life was affected by the text. And here's part of the reason I told you that story was because I sometimes... Uh, have people come to me who are spiritual investigators who say, you know, Doug, I did the research. I've done all this reading on stuff, and that's led me to not believe in God. And you know what? After over 20 years of having spiritual conversations with people who are seekers, I don't believe that to be true most of the time. In fact, typically when I drill down in the conversation, if people are honest with me, we find out that a lot of people have a bias towards unbelief because someone like a priest or a a religious leader or a Christian person hurt them, abused them, someone who is an authority figure who represented God in their mind hurt them. And it created an internal bias. Look, nobody, not, not one of us in this room makes decisions based upon data alone. There are a lot of other factors that shape the reason for the decisions that you and I make. And I want to just ask you, please, 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 consider, carefully consider, not just the New Testament and the data like I've presented today, but consider the core motive within your heart regarding whether or not you believe or don't. And what I want you to know, that the God of this word 
is a perfect and loving God. And his heart for you is good. And throughout your life, some events have happened that have warped the way you see reality in God. And it have caused you to believe that God doesn't want good for you. And that God's ready to jackhammer you the first time you do something wrong. And that's not his heart for you. He has good plans for you. He wants to give you, he says, life and life to the full. That'll get you through the hard times in this life and also get you into a preferred future in the afterlife. So with that in mind, let's bow for prayer. And as we bow, those of you that are Christ followers, would you do me a favor and would you just start silently praying right now and asking the Holy Spirit to move among us and work? Did you know that your prayers right now in these moments, believers, may be more powerful than all the words that I've spoken today for sure? Just pray. And as believers are praying in their hearts for the Spirit of God to move, maybe, just maybe, there are a couple of people that God brought here to adopt into his family today. And you're, you're sensing something. It transcends just your thoughts about God. And it transcends just your emotions and feelings about God. But it's like a loving presence welcoming you home. You know what you're sensing is the Holy Spirit of God drawing you to a relationship with Jesus. And I want you to pray to him right now while you have a window of opportunity. Just say in your own heart and mind, just between you and God, look, God, I know I've sinned. And God, right now, the best I know how, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. And God, I welcome you into my life. God, I believe that Jesus not only died on the cross for my sin, but he rose again from the dead to give me a new life. And I welcome you into my life. You know, if you just prayed that, you have my permission to look up at me during the prayer. Just look up at me and let me know. Awesome. Yes. I have a word for you. I want to speak a word to you if you're looking up at me right now. He said, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You know what that makes you right now? A child of God. You are a daughter, a son of the living God. And he loves you very, very, very much more than what we can even explain with our limited vocabularies. So let's bow again for prayer. And all of us who have known God for many years or some of us are new Christians, we're praying, God, would you crank up the intensity of our love for your word? God, we want to read it. We want to listen to it on our phone apps. We want to embrace it. And we don't want to just know it so we can argue about predestination with our judgmental Christian friends at other churches. We want to know it so we can experience more of you because you are life. You are love. You are the greatest reality. You are the greatest treasure and reward in all the universe. And we want more of you and your presence. So thank you for this good word that points us toward Jesus. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And for his sake, everyone said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.